Midwest Crime Files is a true crimes podcast. In it, we discuss adult themes and go over the details of heinous crimes and how they were committed. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to the Midwest Crime Files. I'm your host, Gina. And I'm Chris. And we're here to tell you the stories of small towns and the heinous crimes that changed them forever. This week's story does not take place in a small town, but it does take place in St. Louis, Missouri, very close to southern Illinois and just a short drive from a lot of very small towns. Um, I want to preface this whole episode by letting you guys know that today's story is one that invokes a lot of emotion and a lot of people have very strong opinions about it. It involves not only murder but sexual assault as well as insight into racial bias within the law enforcement and judicial system. And so I know that it's not a story that people who are familiar with it take very lightly. Um, So I just wanted to kind of forewarn everybody that this is a pretty um, intense story. So the story I'm going to tell you is about two exceptional young women. Robin and Julie Carey were citizens of St. Louis. Julie was 20 and her younger sister Robin 19 years old. They were both college students at UMSL. They did significant volunteer work. They were part of organizations such as Amnesty International. Julie was an inspiring writer and poet. They were both very idealistic, forward-thinking, brilliantly bright young women. And that would all change on the night of April 4th, 1991. Julie was born in December of 1970 and Her sister followed shortly behind in January of 1972. Robin and Julie also had a younger sister and an older sister. They lived in St. Louis where they were successful students and both eventually enrolled at UMSL. A St. Louis Post-Dispatch article from 1991 describes the girls um, as having a desire to work against inequality and promote justice. They were advocates for anti-racism. And in the spring of 1991, the girls spent their spring break with their cousins from Maryland who were visiting St. Louis. The final night of that visit would be a devastating one that would change so many people's lives forever. On April 4th, 1991, Julie and Robin wanted to take their 19-year-old cousin, Thomas Cummings, to see a poem that they had spray-painted in graffiti on the Old Chain of Rocks Bridge. The Old Chain of Rocks Bridge was part of the original Route 66. It ran over the Mississippi River from Illinois to Missouri. However, in the 1960s, it closed to vehicular traffic. So, In the early 90s, it was basically an abandoned bridge. And growing up in this area, I can remember people saying they just need to tear that down. But that never did happen. 
Um, today the bridge is used as a bike path and a walking path from St. Louis um, to Madison, Illinois. And it's a nice place in the daytime. It's very scenic, very pretty. But in 1991, it was not well kept. It was uh, gated off and you weren't really supposed to get to it. But a lot of youth hung out there. It was a popular place, especially if you were a graffiti artist. So the teens wanted to show their cousin Tom this poem that they had wrote. So they headed out to the old Chain of Rocks Bridge and they started to look for the poem. Now it's dark and because this wasn't an open bridge at the time there wasn't a lot of light and stuff so they had to use their lighters and things to look for the poem but they eventually found it and they decided they wanted to walk the rest of the bridge now mind you too at this time the bridge had a bunch of open manholes that did not have covers for them so it had to be a little eerie like you have to be careful where you're walking or you're going to step into a manhole yeah i couldn't imagine walking on a bridge over the the Mississippi in the middle of the night with using a lighter. Right. No light. Know? I mean, it's dark. Like, this is pre, like pre-cell phone days where we all, you know, like, I love how now everybody's like, oh, I need light. Sign my cell phone. You know, shine your cell phone. Like, I remember, like, I just couldn't imagine being out in the middle of that just without any light at all. Right. It had to be, like, a little eerie and creepy. Um... And as the girls reached the, about probably halfway point of the bridge, they heard some voices and they got a little scared. Like they thought, you know, maybe this was cops or authorities because the bridge was closed. They weren't really supposed to be there. Um, but they calmed down when they saw it was four young men, um, you know, young in age, like late teens early 20s so somewhere around, around their age yeah some, they're around their age so and you know seeing other people on that bridge out at night i mean wouldn't have been it's it wasn't uncommon this right. was a normal place for for teenagers especially graffiti artists so um the boys stop and they they kind of talk especially to the girls they're kind of flirty um you know, I think one bummed a cigarette off of Robin or Julie, and then they started walking back towards the Missouri side while Robin and Julie and Tom continued to the Illinois side. Now, as the groups are separating, one of the young men shouts out that he lost his flashlight, so if they find it, can they get it for him? And they're like, oh, well, okay, you know, not thinking they're going to see this person ever again, but all right, sure. And they keep walking. They reach the Illinois side of the bridge. They hang out there for a little bit. They start walking back towards Missouri, but the four men are there once again. According to Tom Cummins' testimony, as they started walking back towards the Missouri side, one of the men basically forced him to get down on his stomach and keep his head down. And in the book... A Rip in Heaven by Janine Cummins, who is Tom Cummins' younger sister. It describes in vivid detail what Tom experienced that night. He said that as the men forced him to lay on his stomach on the bridge, they went through his pockets, they stole his watch, they stole his 
wallet. Um, they took whatever they could from him. But that wasn't even the worst thing that he experienced. As he's laying there on his stomach, face down on this bridge, he can hear his cousins, Robin and Julie, screaming in a panic, scared, just awful sound. And he presumed, based off what he could hear and what he could hear the men talking about, that the men were raping Julie and Robin. He even heard... One of the men say something pretty disturbing. I'm going to have you read that quote. Uh, he said, quote, You stupid bitch, do you want to die? I'll throw you off this bridge if you don't stop fighting. End quote. I can't imagine the fear. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure at this point, too, like, they're thinking this is as bad as it could get. But it wasn't. Tom talked about that after they robbed him and he heard the his cousin screaming and crying as they were being sexually assaulted, he was ordered by one of the men to go down into one of the manholes. And when he did that, he found Robin and Julie naked underneath the bridge that they had also crawled through the manhole. Yeah, and I want to preface something. Uh, when they we say a manhole cover, like it is your standard manhole cover, but it's not like it's going down into a sewer system. This was just an access way, an access point to get to the underneath of the bridge. So imagine that they're in the middle of the night, no lights, dark. Uh, the girls are naked. Tom has been assaulted, and they're having him climb onto the undercarriage of the bridge. You know, so it's not like there's a lot of anything to hold on to or to get your uh, bearing with down there. No, and they're also scared out of their mind. Right. Um, you know, it's it's April, it's early spring, it's very cold. The girls are nude, so they're you know I'm I'm sure shivering and just traumatized in general. And af after they go down to this under part of the bridge. They tell Tom and the girls to step onto the concrete pier that is holding up the bridge. And that is when they said two of the men were down there and two of the men were not. The f men first pushed Ro uh, Julie sorry, into the Mississippi River. And then they pushed Robin. And Tom says that one of the men looked at him and said, jump or I'll shoot you. And he describes that he believed them that they were going to shoot him. And so he jumped into the river before he could get shot and would still end up into the river. Now, the important thing to understand is that the Mississippi River, while most of you probably know what it is and where it is, it's not the kind of river that you can swim in. It's very strong currents. It's, um, it's not suitable for swimmers. It's not suitable for boaters, really. Well, no, At least not by the Illinois-Missouri area. Not really. Well, I mean, there is, like, people do fish around that area. But, I mean, it's called, like, the nickname is the Mighty Mississippi. Like, the Mighty Mississippi. Like, it's not, this river isn't just a, your little stream behind your house. I mean, it does have a very strong current into it. It's not yeah. a recreational river. Right. Um, and it's early spring, and, and so I'm sure it was freezing. 
Tom describes when he landed in the water after falling very far, which we'll talk a little bit more about exactly what that height is later because there's some debate to that, but it's a very far fall. Um, I mean, that, I mean, if anything, picture your a normal bridge that you see over a river, like a major river, and imagine that height. I mean, even if it's even if it's only twenty feet, like it's still enough to scare the shit out of most people. It's a it's a pretty severe drop. Tom talks about that he comes up and he sees Julie, and they swim together for a little while, but he never saw Robin. Once he hit the water, he never saw Robin. Um, He swims with Julie, and in the book, A Rip from Heaven, it even describes that at one point, Julie kind of wraps her arms around him, and they both start to sink underwater. And in an effort to make sure that neither one of them drowns, Tom tries to push Julie up and then propel himself up, and when he does that, he loses track of her. And from that point, he's swimming on his own. The currents are insanely strong, but he manages to get to the Missouri side of the river onto the bank a couple of miles south of the bridge. And when he comes up, he is covered in mud and river silt, and he doesn't really think about that though he's thinking about his cousins they're in the water he's got to get help so he flags down a trucker who calls first responders first responders officers arrive and it's instantly a search for these girls they have coast guard out they have anyone and everybody you can think of. i mean anybody that had a boat that's associated with the state troopers fbi Uh, They all had boats and divers uh, looking for them. Now, mind you, at this point in time, probably close to 2 a.m.-ish, it's the middle of the night. What really surprised me is that they talked about how unknowingly Tom had actually fractured his hip, either in the fall or in the river somehow, but he wouldn't know it for quite a while. Like, not even... The same day he actually is back home in Maryland before he he finds this out and I really that was in Janine Cummins book and I really couldn't find anything else yeah, about and, the broken and, hip and, anywhere and else nobody really like uh, even the documentary we watched they talked they didn't really talk about uh, the fracture or anything like that right so but, there's not a whole lot of information on it but I mean I'm sure he was in shock most definitely. But the thing that I think bothers me is when first responders came, they said that his hands had definitely been soaked. Right. You know, they're that... He, they were pruned and right. showed that he had been underwater for a, a significant amount of time. Right. And he had mud and river silt all over him. And it, it's early spring. So So that water had to be freezing. Yeah, I mean, and it's the Mississippi River, so, I mean, the river, it's colder than normal. It blows my mind. Like, EMS responded, but it blows my mind that he was not taken to a hospital. Yeah, and that's... And I couldn't find anything about that anywhere. And I looked at a ton of sources. My only thing that I could get from conclusion is that they medically cleared him at the scene, like, 
because, and the way I'm thinking is, because I mean, as we get going, sorry, as we get going on more about it, we're we learn that he instantly becomes a prime suspect, you know, because he's the first one, like the last one to be seen. And I don't know if EMS just medically cleared him there so the cops could proceed to talk to him, like without any substantial loss in information or anything like that. But I do agree with you, though, that I find it very weird that it's the middle of the night in frigid temperatures and you have a man that just got pulled out of the river. And, and you he, don't take and, him to a hospital. And you don't take him to a hospital at all. I just, I found that very, very strange. And that was something that really bothered me about this whole case. Because, like Chris said, they instantly start to question him. And in a lot of sources, they say that his hair was neatly combed. So they didn't believe that he had been in the river that long. And they thought that maybe he had made that portion up and that there was more to this story. They investigate. He takes them up on the bridge. He shows them where everything happened. He shows them where the girls' clothes are, and there they are still lying there. Right. He tells them about the whole story, including the flashlight. They take him down to the police headquarters to continue questioning him, and they question him for hours and hours and hours it's like noon the day after at this point. And while the search is still going on in the Mississippi River for Robin and Julie, Tom is still being questioned. Now, he's been up way upwards of 24 hours, not to mention he's been through a trauma. He's been through a physical trauma, an emotional trauma. I can't imagine the level of exhaustion. Right. And they keep questioning him. And basically... The police's theory is that he tried to make a sexual advance at his cousin Julie and that Julie rejected him and somehow fell into the river and then Robin jumped in after her. There's a lot of problems with that, though, because they did find their clothes. Yeah, but, I mean, if you go... I can't remember the name of the documentary. Is it a ripping? heaven or that's the book written okay. by janine cummins the i think it was the american justice episode right in that episode they actually show uh some of his uh, interrogation some audio question, from and, it yeah in question like audio from it and some of the, what he says is very suspicious i mean he talks in depth about having a very close relationship uh with robin i believe with julie with julie and just the way he's talking, I could see how the cops would kind of, kind it, of trigger onto because he was very talking, talking very, not sexual but very intimate, like right. somebody that had an intimate relationship uh, with somebody. And I'm not talking about sexual, but you know, a very close intimate relationship with somebody I think would have. He worded something along the lines of like caring deeply for each other right. or something. You know, and maybe it was a little odd or strange, but I I don't know where their theory came from because to me it doesn't make sense. But that was their theory and they questioned him, they questioned him and then they said, you know, it's just routine. Why don't we give you a polygraph test? So here's the problem. Polygraph tests, for anybody that follows true crime, is probably aware they're not the most reliable. The American Psychological Association um, 
website talks in depth about polygraph examinations and how they've been proven to be unreliable multiple times. And they're not even admissible in most courts because they are so unreliable. Right. I mean, and it's like, for all of you that don't know, like, it's a combination of blood pressure readings, heart rate readings, respirations, and then also perspiration readings as well that all go into a polygraph test. So you have a man that has just went through trauma, has been up for 24 hours being interrogated, and during that interrogation, like the questioning interrogation, was actually falling asleep during the questioning. Right. You know, so if your body isn't in some kind of discombobulated, go fuck yourself at that point, like it just goes to, sh- like, the results for this polygraph were definitely going to be skewed. Yeah. I mean, I, I just imagine, like, if you've ever fallen asleep in class. And you're drifting off, and then the teacher calls on you, and you jolt up real quick. That is what I imagine Tom Cummins went through each time he was asked a question. So, believe it or not, he failed this polygraph. And so, as soon as he fails the polygraph, um, they turn up the heat. They start pushing. Um, in the book, A Rip from Heaven, it talks a lot about, like, verbally abusive statements, very aggressive in an article that Janine Cummins wrote later down the line, she described that there was some physical violence involved as well. Eventually, the cops are like, this is what happened. We know that's what happened. Why don't you just say this? And Tom makes a statement, something along the lines of, you're not going to believe me anyway. So if that's what you say happened, then fine. That's what happened. And the cops say, oh, we got a confession. So next step is to get it recorded. So they want him to sign a written confession and they want him to do a recorded confession. He declines both. He says, I'm not doing that because I'm innocent and I told you that I'm innocent. And that's when he sort of stops cooperating with them. Thank God. Yeah, thank God. (laughs) Um, And his family, they, they hire a lawyer and, you know, the lawyer, of course, says, quit talking. And they stop talking. Well, and this go like this is the same reason why torturing somebody like prisoners of war doesn't get you information either. People will just like at that point in time, he's under a lot of stress, in duress, like and yeah, people will say whatever you want them, what they want you, what you want to hear, mm-hmm. to get out of that situation. I mean, so yeah, like at that point, I'd be like, yeah, fine. I mean, you guys don't think I'm gonna like. I'm obviously not, obviously nothing I'm saying is at this point changing your mind. Yeah, go ahead. Like, if you if you say I did it, I did it. Well, and it sounds like something like my teenage son would say to me when I'm questioning him about something. And he'd be like, whatever, believe whatever you want. And that's what it sounds like. It doesn't sound like he's confessing. It sounds more right. like he's like, whatever, people, you're not going to listen to me anyway. Right. So they present this case the following day to the district attorney. And he basically tells them. Cut him loose. You don't have anything. There's there's no evidence here. You know, yes, you've arrested him, and you say he's confessed, but he really hasn't, so let him go. So they do, but he's still the, the prime suspect. Um, police, meanwhile, are still gathering evidence on the bridge, and what do you know? They come by a flashlight. Now, the flashlight had some very specific wording engraved into it to identify it specifically. Right. 
Um, so what police do is they take this flashlight and they go to the news media and they say, you know, does anybody know who owns this flashlight? They might be a witness to the incident that happened at the bridge. And at this time, Robin and Julie are considered missing persons. They're still thinking it's Tom. They're thinking whoever owns this flashlight is going to help nail in Tom's coffin. Right. But they get a call and they are told that Antonio Richardson, a 16-year-old, had stolen this flashlight. And so they track Antonio Richardson down. Um, He was born in 1974, so at this time he's only 16 years old. He was the middle son of a single mother. He lived in poverty. He suffered from drug abuse, as did his mother. He had a lot of difficulty in school, behavioral problems. And and by this time, he's 16, he's already dropped out. And he's continuing to um, use substances. His life's not on a great path. And they bring him into police headquarters to be interviewed, presumably, again, as a witness. But that's not what they find out. He tells authorities that him and two other men were on the bridge that night. And he eventually confesses to raping Julie and Robin Carey. He eventually confesses to the murders too. Although he later recants that statement. The interesting thing about his confession is that it matched the details almost exactly to the story Tom Cummins had given. Yeah. He also implicates his cousin, Reginald Clemens, and another man, Marlon Gray. So we're going to talk about these other men that were involved. Marlon Gray was born in 1967. He was the oldest of the group. And he was known as a charismatic kind of guy, kind of gets his way most of the time, kind of known as the ringleader. And then... Reginald Clemens, who went by Reggie, he was Antonio's cousin, but he was raised really different. He was raised in a home with morals and values, and they went to church. Um, By all accounts, he had a decent childhood, Um, but he tended to be a follower, and that gets him into some trouble. And the two men, when they bring Reggie and Marlin and they implicate another man making it four men just as Tom had said the fourth person is Daniel Winfrey Daniel was just 15 years old and the only white man out of the group of four men all of the men confessed to being on the bridge they all confessed to seeing the Carey sisters and Tom Daniel Winfrey confessed to police the entire chain of events, including the rapes, the murders of the girls, but he denied participating in the rapes. He did admit to robbing Tom Cummins. He testified that as the group headed back towards Missouri, he heard Clemens say, let's rob them. And Marlon Gray said, yeah, I feel like hurting somebody. And that, Richardson suggested, that they rape the girls. Daniel Winfrey made a deal with the prosecution to testify against the other three in exchange for a 30-year sentence. That fact would be the catalyst for 
a legal circus that lasts nearly 30 years. Reginald Clemens and Antonio Richardson both confessed to the rape and being the two men that forced the girls off of the bridge. Thomas Cummins was able to identify all four assailants successfully in lineups. Before the murder trials began, the body of Julie Carey was found in Caruthersville, Missouri, which is about two hours south of St. Louis. Yeah, and about 200 miles on the river. Yeah. Um, So her body comes up onto the bank of the river about three weeks after the murder. Unfortunately, the body of Robin Carey was never found. The Carey family holds a memorial service for the girls in May of 1991. Loved ones celebrated their lives by blowing bubbles and sharing fond memories. The girls have a shared headstone at Calvary Cemetery in St. Louis. One thing in the book, A Rip from Heaven, that I found really interesting is that Robin Carey apparently told her mother like way before the murders that she just felt like she was going to die young and that she told her mom that when she dies she didn't want it to be a sad funeral where people wear black and they cry she wanted people to be bright and to blow bubbles and to celebrate her life so that is how the memorial service went the first to go on trial was marlon gray at this time, he's denying involvement in the crimes. He claimed to be in the car at the time that the girls were assaulted and murdered. However, evidence presented that he was in possession of Tom Cummins' watch after the crime. And he told friends that he committed the murders before he was even questioned by police or brought into it. He was taking credit, you know, I guess trying to make himself look cool for for killing these women. Thomas Cummins and Daniel Winfrey both testified against Marlon Gray and their testimony is what led to his conviction. He was convicted of murder and he was given the death penalty. Reginald Clemens' trial plays out similarly with the evidence of the flashlight the witness testimony of Winfrey and Cummins, and his own confession being used against him. But at this point, Reggie has recanted his confession. He's claimed that police brutality caused him to give the confession. And apparently there was maybe some evidence to support that. Some witnesses say that they saw him after his arrest and that he had some swelling in his face. But this evidence was considered unreliable and they didn't present any of this at trial. Reginald Clemens was found guilty and was sentenced to death. Antonio Richardson, one of the two men who were minors at the time of the crime, was offered a plea deal, but he declined it. Instead, he faced trial and he also recanted his confession. He, too, was found guilty in 1993, and at that time, the jury could not determine whether or not they felt he needed to have the death penalty or whether or not he should get life in prison. And the judge made the decision and sentenced Antonio Richardson to death. As we discuss the the legalities of this case, 
we're going to get into a lot of information about when the death penalty is appropriate and when it's not. But this decision being based from a judge and not from a jury will be instrumental in what happens later down the road. Before the state of Missouri could execute him, they actually set an execution date for March 7th of 2001. But Antonio got a stay pending an outcome of another case, which was determining whether or not it was constitutional to execute somebody who was mentally impaired. So a lot of sources that I found said that Antonio Richardson's IQ is in the low 70s, which is considered borderline. There are some sources, though, that say that that's not true and his IQ is actually much higher. Nevertheless, his execution is commuted to life in prison without the possibility of parole in 2003 based off the fact that it's not constitutional to execute someone who is mentally impaired. In 2005, the United States Supreme Court actually ruled that it's unconstitutional to sentence someone to death who's under 18 at the time of their crime. So even if this mental handicap issue had not come up, Antonio Richardson likely would have had his sentence commuted to life anyway, based off the fact that he was 16. Marlon Gray appealed his conviction and his death sentence, but was unsuccessful. He continually professed his innocence in the case, and he claimed that he was sitting in the car. And what he says is interesting because they all claim that they're innocent at some point in time, but except for Daniel Winfrey. But even in their their new stories, their, you know, recanted their original confessions, and now they're giving this other information, they're not pointing the finger like, oh, we weren't there or we didn't have anything to do with it. All of their news stories kind of implicate each other. Um, Marlon Gray said that Reginald Clemens came to the car and told him, quote, man, I just robbed that guy and threw the girls in the river, end quote. So Gray is actually implicating Reginald Clemens in this crime. His appeals, they all proved to be unsuccessful and the state of Missouri executed Marlon Gray on October 26, 2005. Later down the line, I think in like 2017, DNA evidence from a condom found at the scene linked Gray to the rape of the Carey sisters. Reginald Clemens repeatedly appealed his case and death sentence. And growing up in the Metro East, I've seen him on the news and heard about his appeals more times than I can probably count. Like this has been going on for nearly 30 years. Reginald Clemens uh, eventually was able to get a stay on his execution in 2009. And then later in 2015, his conviction was overturned. Basically, the reason his conviction was overturned is because the state supposedly suppressed evidence that would have proven Clemens to be a victim of police brutality. In uh, Reginald Clemens claims that this police brutality is what caused him to give a coerced confession and that he was an innocent man. Clemens was not released, however. 
um, he had another crime that he was doing a 15-year sentence for. In 2007, he attacked a correctional officer. So this is, this is not a nonviolent man, clearly. So he remained in prison while the state prepared to retry him. The state was once again preparing to go for the death penalty. Contributing to Reggie's claim of police brutality is Thomas Cummins himself. Thomas Cummins filed a, and settled a lawsuit against the St. Louis Police Department for abuse and coercion that he experienced in leading to what authorities considered originally to be the confession of Tom Cummins the day after the murders. So he did have a successful lawsuit and he got a judgment against them, but the fact that he successfully won that sort of gave some credit to Reginald Clemens' story that these police officers were not doing things properly. Right. Despite decades of professing his innocence to the media, to his followers, Reggie Clemens admitted his guilt and pled guilty in 2017. He was sentenced to five life sentences. During the sentencing hearing, Jenny Carey, the mother of Robin and Julie Carey, stated that Clemens admitted to the crimes and apologized to her not once, but twice. And Jenny said, quote, It means a lot to me. It's not going to bring my daughters back. He's on the road to being sorry. And that I couldn't even pray for the man before. Now I can. He said, I'm sorry, Mrs. Carey, for all I've put you through, end quote. The DNA on the condom that linked Marlon Gray also linked Reginald Clemens. The interesting thing is that there's still some support Reggie Clemens groups out there that are still advocating for this man and feeling that he's innocent. And I don't know if he personally is telling people that he's still innocent, but you don't fight a conviction for decades, overturn your conviction, and then plead guilty unless you ha know that you're going to get the death penalty if it goes back to trial. Right. He knew he would get the death penalty. There was DNA evidence against him. And, you know, there's this thing called an Alford plea that you can plead guilty without admitting that you were at fault. And as far as I can tell, that's not what Reggie Clemens did either. He admitted guilt in open court and apologized to the mother of these girls. And I just don't think that's something you do if you didn't do it. Right. It doesn't make any sense. Um, the crazy thing is he was sentenced to five life sentences. However... In 1991, apparently there was no minimum sentencing guidelines for violent crimes. So because he's already served 25 plus years, he actually was eligible for parole in 2020. I couldn't find an article about the parole hearing. I could find several articles asking for letters from um, supporters to support his his parole hearing and then of course there's 
victim advocacy groups that were asking for letters to keep him in prison. As far as I can tell, Reginald Clemens was denied parole. He remains in the Missouri uh, prison system where I think he's probably going to spend a majority, if not all of his life. Yeah. Um, Julie and Robin Carey, they went to the bridge that night to show their cousins a poem. And the interesting thing is, is that this poem, which A Rip From Heaven by Janine Cummins has the poem, all of the words in detail in it. And it's a beautiful poem that advocates against racism and violence. This was a highly publicized case, and there's a lot of conflicting information and claims on the internet. Um, I tried to stick to reliable sources because you can go down a rabbit hole so easily on any of these websites, and there were some crazy theories that I couldn't substantiate. There's a lot of people that are very passionate about this case. They argue about police misconduct, racism, civil rights violations, innocent men being sentenced to prison and harshly punished. And honestly, like the allegations that the four or at least three out of the four um, perpetrators make are potentially not wrong. Um, you know, because these are the same tactics that caused them to go down the rabbit hole with Tom Cummins and they were convinced of his guilt. And I think the important thing is to remember that police have to be unbiased in what they do. And they have to do things the right way and the legal way. And not just because we don't want innocent men in prison, but we don't want guilty men to get out of prison because of police misconduct. Things have to be done the appropriate way. This case also, to me, reminds me that while there, everybody gets very fixated on the perpetrator, especially in this case, and Reginald Clemens in particular has had a lot of media attention, we can't forget the victims. Robin and Julie... They could have changed the world. They could have advocated for men in the legal system. And based off what I've read in numerous articles, I feel like they would be the girls that would be out there marching with the Black Lives Matters group. Yeah. I mean, they were those kind of women. They they wanted equality. They wanted justice. They wanted things in this world to be better for everybody. The fact that Daniel Winfrey was the only white man and accepted a plea bargain, um, that led to a lot of misfeelings too. And I, I understand that. Um, there are some claims that he did not participate in the rapes and because he was the youngest at only 15, that that's why he got that deal. Whether or not it's that or the color of his skin, I don't know the answer to that. Um, Daniel was eventually paroled but unfortunately he couldn't seem to get himself out of trouble and he is back in prison on parole violations so it seems like he can't escape the past regardless of making that deal 
one quote that I really want to share because I think it sums up what's really important about this story is from an article that Janine Cummins wrote in 2015. And the quote says, quote, yes, the police likely did beat Reginald Clemens. End quote. And then she says, quote, when those cops put their hands on Reginald Clemens, they didn't just violate him. They violated the justice that Robin and Julie deserve, end quote. And I just, I think that's the best way to wrap up this story and, and what to take away from it is that we have to have professional investigative efforts. We have to have a, a professional police department. You know, I don't think that police officers want people to co to admit to crimes that they didn't commit. I don't think they want to have false confessions, but they have to make sure that they're doing things the right way. In this particular case, um, Chris, I don't know what your feelings are. I feel like the right people are in prison or have been punished. I feel like the right people are in prison, but I don't, I don't think that it was gotten the right way. Correct. You know, like, I do believe that there was possibly some coerced uh, confessions and like, and definitely some police, police, ugh, police brutality, you know? And I just, it's, it boggles my mind that we're like in 2021 and we're st and we still deal with this kind of stuff, you know, like racial profiling, miscarriages of justice, like police brutality. Like, like you said earlier, like we do need the right people to go to jail. Uh, police departments and officers are going about getting this information and doing these things is making it so, like you said, they get off with limited time. Well, they have grounds. They have grounds for these appeals. Um, I personally am glad that Reginald Clemens received five life sentences. I'm not thrilled that he has the possibility of parole, but I also don't disagree that the death penalty probably wasn't warranted because there was evidence of police misconduct. Right. You know, I, well, I and one of the things that I, I really don't appreciate with this story is, um, the white guy, Daniel Winfrey, Daniel Winfrey. Okay. He's the youngest at 15. Yes. And states he didn't do nothing. I didn't do nothing. I was just there. Okay. But then you have three other gentlemen that only two, were proven to actually have raped mm -hmm. with the uh, DNA evidence, right? Correct. But the DNA evidence, to be fair, was not available at the time of their trials. Right. But the, the thing I don't get is instantly we want the death sentence for three of the four guys. But this other guy, oh, we're, he gets a 30-year deal. Like, I can understand if you take... That, oh, we're not going to give you a death sentence. You're just going to get life in prison, because there was nothing that substantiated him being. There was no evidence that said he wasn't the one. Like that was really kind of another thing that kind of got to me in this case is there was no real evidence on which one actually committed the murders. You know, there was a bunch of finger pointing, and people. Oh yeah, they did it. Oh yeah, they did it. You know, but then there was a bunch of recanting. Like oh no, no, it was them. You know, like there was so much information that was floated around in this case that I don't see a plea deal 
of 30 years being anywhere near what it should have been for a plea deal. I think the plea deal should have been like, we're not going after the death penalty for you. So you can either get life in prison and possibly get parole then, or you can go to trial and possibly get the death penalty. Because there has to be some form of evidence that substantiates, you know, if you can't tell me exactly who did what at the time of the of the court, then all of them get tried with everything. Well, you do have Tom Cummings, though, that testified that Daniel Winfrey was sitting on his back during most of the sexual assaults. Okay, that's their sexual assault. Daniel Winfrey, and, and I'm not defending it one way or another, because I have a big problem with this too, um, but Daniel Winfrey was also the only one to be forthright about things and being 15. So I guess that's kind of where my issues in this case come up the most, and in today's society, they would not have been tried for the death penalty anyway, because... There is no death penalty. You, you, well, in Missouri there is, but not for minors. Um, I'm. I think Antonio Richardson is guilty, but I'm glad that he did not get the death penalty because I don't think that somebody that is 15 and 16 years old is my personal opinion. Um, I don't believe that they should get the death penalty. So I don't believe that Antonio Richardson should have gotten the death penalty. Now, that being said, they did offer him a plea deal, and he passed it up. So he could have potentially gotten a plea deal. I I don't know the specifics of it, but comparable to Daniel Winfrey's had he testified against Reginald Clemens and Marlon Gray, but he declined to do so. There's just a whole bunch, like, in this case, and that's what drives its... Like, that's what the fuel for the to the fire is now with it still. You know, there's just so many different outstanding things with it and so many different variables to it that it's a case that is probably going to be talked about for the next 30 years. Well, and I'm sure it's something that is studied in law school programs, especially in the St. Louis area. And I say that because there are so many factors to think about and to consider in this case. Um, I mean, if you go from, like, the police brutality of Tom Collins, the deprivation that Tom Collins had was put through before questioning and all that stuff, the treatment of uh, the four other assailants, you know, there's just so many different things that were wrong about this case that... You're right. Like the criminal like justice programs around here are probably gonna be talking about it for a while, you know. But I, I, it's still gonna be in the news for a long time. Well, and I can't fault supporters of Reginald Clemens for being upset about what happened to him. Do I think he's guilty? Yes, I do. Do I think he's exactly where he needs to be? Absolutely. But is it right that not only was there police brutality or evidence of, but it was also buried by the prosecutor and not allowed in the trial? No. That is not okay. That's not okay with me. Um, 
you know, as a white woman, it is not okay with me that a black man or any man be treated that way. Right. And that's the th- and that's the thing. We need to get this <clears throat> you know, the conversation has been started for probably the past 3 or 4 years. You know, of police brutality and uh racial injustices and stuff like that. And honestly, I think it needs to continue. You know, the injustices in our uh, police force are ridiculous. Agreed. You know, I mean, I, do I believe there are good cops? Absolutely. I absolutely b- believe that if you, like, most cops you run into are amazing, you know, people and want to do, do the best for their... Uh, jurisdiction or the best for the towns that they work for. They want to keep their community safe and that's fair. It's the the 5%, 1%, whatever percent of the police force that are dirty or crooked or have some racial undertones to them. You know, that's the ones that need to get weeded out quick. And they may not even realize it. I mean, to be fair, as far as the police brutality goes, I mean, I don't even necessarily know that that was racially motivated because Tom Cummins, who's a white man, won a lawsuit based off police brutality and abuse from the police department. So, you know, was that racially motivated? I understand why people may think that it is. But I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. Right. And unfortunately, that's going to be one of those questions I don't think is going to be answered ever. No. You know, nobody's going to be be like, oh, yeah, they did it because he was black or didn't. You know, the, it always comes to the fact that, oh, like, they, we had to, you know, tr- you know, get rough with them because they started getting rough with us kind of thing, you know. Right. And unfortunately... As much as I want to, like, I would love it. I don't think it's going to happen in our lifetimes, you know. <sighs> and I think, too, like, it's unfortunate that all of the appeals processes, the the legal parts of this, keeps tearing that Band-Aid off the Carey family over and over and over And this April, it will be 30 years since the world lost two beautiful, smart, intelligent women who had extremely bright futures. It's just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And I think that while it's important to make sure that our legal and judicial systems and our law enforcement is done the correct way and it's fair for everybody i don't want people to lose sight of who the victims are in this case the victims are julie and robin carey and their families i think it's also important to know that at the end of the day i feel like me personally from all the evidence that i have read through all of my research I do feel like the right people were punished, but there's so many things that were wrong with the way that it happened. There's so much potential that these people could have gotten away with murder and sexual assault and robbery and just awful crimes because our legal system didn't do what it was supposed to do the right way. 
and that's a problem. If you want more information on this case, you can visit us at www.themidwestcrimefiles.com. In our blog post, we share several pictures of both the victims and the perpetrators, and as well as even a picture of the Chain of Rocks Bridge, just so you can get that visual. There's an extended list of resources and our references that we have for it for the story yes and there there's a bunch um and i highly highly recommend a rip from heaven by janine cummins keep in mind and i think even in the very beginning of the book she says this like this is my family i'm not going to sit here and pretend to be neutral because she's not neutral this is her family but the information is presented in a fair way i don't feel like it's um you know a one-sided account and it really when you read the book like i cried multiple times reading it it's so well written but it really brings you inside what the family of robin and julie and what families of crime victims everywhere go through not just when the crime happens but every time there's another court hearing, there's another parole hearing, there's an appeal. Every time there's something going on, that Band-Aid gets ripped off again. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week with a brand new story. See you guys.